Right. Well, today we'll be building on what I covered last time. And after giving a brief sketch of the development, the concept of race, and the practice of racism in history, we considered the reality of systemic racism, which biblically can be seen as racial oppression. So in systemic racism, those in positions of power within a society produce policies which unfairly favor the treatment of one race over another. Systemic racism, then, has been present both in our country generally as well as our churches specifically. And so I gave two recent examples of systemic racism in our nation, abortion and housing. But as we have rightly come to recognize the sin of racism in society, more and more people have sought to restore equality between races. And thankfully, we have been able to make much progress through the civil rights movement and the cultural changes which have taken place over the last several decades. Yet we are still wrestling over racism in our midst, and the social justice movement has sought to repair these remaining injustices in our society. So this brings us to the contemporary debate over social justice. A growing number of Christians today are embracing social justice and view it as a gospel issue. Since our God is a God of justice, so Christ's church must follow him by pursuing social justice. At the same time, many Christians don't like the term social justice since it often involves beliefs and practices opposed to our faith. This is why Scott David Allen wrote the book, Why Social Justice is Not Biblical Justice, an urgent appeal to fellow Christians in a time of social crisis. You can tell... From the title, the contrast that Alan is drawing between social justice and biblical justice. Still other Christians will stress the importance of social justice while warning against the unbiblical beliefs and practices of the modern social justice movement. So in his book, Confronting Injustice Without Compromising Truth, Thaddeus Williams distinguishes between what he labels social justice A and social justice B. Social justice A is social justice carried out in accordance with God's word or in according to God's word, while social justice B is social justice carried out according to worldly philosophy. Now, I don't want to get sidetracked over the use of the term social justice. In one sense, as the Lord gives us opportunity, Christians are commanded by Christ to seek justice in society. If this is what is meant by social justice, then we should have no problem with the term. But in another sense, social justice is usually associated with certain beliefs and practices which are opposed to our faith, and we don't want to mix God's revealed truth with worldly thinking. As a result, I think it is helpful for us to distinguish between social justice as cultural engagement versus social justice as an ideological worldview. Christians recognize that Christ calls us to be salt and light in our culture according to his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, verses 13 to 16. And we are similar to God's old covenant people, Israel, as they were living in a place that was not their home. As God, And then God said to them in Jeremiah 29, verse 7, Seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive, and pray to the Lord for it, for in its peace you will have peace. Well, Christ Churches are citizens of his heavenly kingdom, and this world is not our home, so we too are pilgrims who should seek the peace of our city. And this means that we are involved in our country and to seek justice in our society. Yet, 
We are also warned in Scripture, Colossians 2.8, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. So we need to see the modern social justice movement for what it is, cheating us through philosophy and empty deceit. It is an ideological worldview which clashes with biblical Christianity. Now, we often use the word worldview, but what does it mean? Of course, from the word itself, we can see it means how we view the world. And James Sire provides a well-known definition. You can see it there on the screen. A worldview is a commitment, a fundamental orientation of the heart that can be expressed as a story or in a set of presuppositions, excuse me, assumptions which may be true, partially true, or entirely false, which we hold consciously or subconsciously, consistently or inconsistently, about the basic constitution of reality and that provides the foundation on which we live and move and have our being. So everyone has a worldview. Even if a person is unconscious of it, he or she has certain assumptions and beliefs which provide the necessary framework for one to live in this world. We can compare worldviews to eyeglasses. Of course, I'm all too familiar with wearing glasses. But if I have the right pair of glasses, I can see clearly. If I have the wrong eyeglasses, everything looks blurry. Well, wearing incorrect glasses can even further hurt my general eyesight. The correct worldview, then, will bring the world into clear focus, whereas the incorrect worldview will lead to errors and harm. So it's with this in mind that pastor and theologian Andrew Wilson summarizes the development of this new worldview in social justice. He writes, We can trace it back to three major idols of human history, money, sex, and power and the three founding fathers of modernist thought who correspond to them, Marx, Freud, and Nietzsche. The Marxist thread insists on a basic division of the world into oppressors and oppressed, exploiters and exploited, and calls all oppressed peoples to unite and revolt against their oppressors. The Freudian thread, in which the suppression of sexual urges is the cause of numerous social problems, eventually leads to the transgression of almost all sexual taboos, the consequent decline of the traditional family, and ultimately any sexual constraint that causes a therapeutic difficulty for anyone, including biological sex itself. The Nietzschean thread starts with the observation that humans are motivated by the will to power, and ends up with Michael Foucault arguing that power is the essential feature of all human relationships. Now, while you may not recognize all of these names and historical influences, I trust that you can begin to see here some common threads with arguments for social justice today. This worldview is often called critical race theory, or critical theory, and intersectionality, which has become the standard view in our colleges and universities. But rather than describe this worldview, I want to show two informative and well-made videos from the What You Would uh, What Would You Say series that are provided by the Colson Center. The first video answers the question, is critical theory biblical? While the second responds to those who say critical theory is practical. So let's watch these videos together.
You're in a conversation and someone says, since God cares about the oppressed, Christians should embrace critical theory because it's trying to eliminate oppression too. What would you say? Critical theory is one way our culture attempts to explain and confront power structures. Some Christians have embraced it as well, but what is it? To understand critical theory, we need to understand its two primary claims. First, everyone can be divided into two groups, those who have power and those who don't. Second, those who have power always oppress those who don't. But how do we know who the oppressed and who the oppressors are? According to critical theory, the categories of oppressor and oppressed are based on your group identity. Things like race, gender, religion, immigration status, income, sexual orientation, and gender identity determine whether we are oppressed or one of the oppressors. Of course, someone might be part of an oppressed group in one way, but one of the oppressors in another way. That's where the concept of intersectionality comes in. Intersectionality seeks to measure someone's level of oppression based on how many of these groups they identify with. For example, a black man is less oppressed than a black woman, who is less oppressed than a black lesbian. In critical theory, the degree to which you are oppressed determines your level of moral authority. The more categories of oppression someone identifies with, the more moral authority they have. As a result, the experience and perspective of a gay black woman is more valuable than the experience and perspective of a straight white man, regardless of what they have to say. And in the same way, the more oppressed someone is, the less moral responsibility they have for their actions. Those who aren't part of oppressed groups, straight white men, gain moral authority by surrendering to those who haven't, the oppressed. This is called being woke. Some people claim that since Jesus cares about oppression, critical theory and intersectionality should be embraced by Christians. But critical theory and intersectionality are not consistent with Christianity, and here are three reasons why. First, critical theory offers a different view of humanity than Christianity. Critical theory claims that our identity as human beings is rooted in things like race and gender, features that differ from person to person. The Bible grounds our identity as human beings and the value every human has in the fact that we are created in God's own image. This is something every human being shares. While critical theory pits some groups of people against other groups based on their status as oppressors or oppressed, the Bible says that we are all equal before God. Created equal, equally valuable, equally guilty of sin, equally deserving of punishment, and equally able to find grace and mercy in Jesus. Which leads to the second point. Critical theory offers a different view of sin than Christianity. The Bible identifies sin as anything that violates God's design for people, including unjust oppression of other people. But critical theory identifies sin only as oppression. As a result, advocates of critical theory would see biblical practices such as discipleship, correction, leadership, and reproof as sinful assertions of power if the speaker is among the oppressors, and would excuse sins like jealousy, anger, hatred, bitterness, unforgiveness, or envy among the oppressed. The Bible says that we are all guilty before God, regardless of social status, race, or economic situation. The Bible condemns oppression as one of, but certainly not the only way in which humans rebel against God. 
Because critical theory gets the problem wrong, it also gets the solution which leads to the third point. Critical theory offers a different view of salvation than Christianity. According to the Bible, because we are all equally guilty of sin, salvation can only be found in Jesus through repentance. Our hope is found in being forgiven of sin. Because critical theory teaches that oppressors are guilty and the oppressed are not, salvation for the oppressed is found not through repentance, but in social liberation here and now. Their hope is only through activism. In other words, critical theory has a completely different understanding of who we are, what the problem is, and how to fix it than Christianity. So next time someone, surely with good intentions, tells you that Christians should embrace critical theory because Jesus also cares about the oppressed, remember these three things. Critical theory offers a different view of humanity. Our identity is in our status as image bearers and children of God, not in our race, gender, income, or immigrant status. Critical theory offers a different view of sin. Oppression is wrong, but it is a symptom and not the disease. Critical theory offers a different view of salvation. We cannot solve our biggest problem. Jesus can. Our hope is not in our circumstances on earth, but our destiny in eternity. For what would you say? I'm Joseph Backlund. Thanks for watching. I hope you loved the video. And if you did, make sure you hit subscribe so you can see the next one too. You're in a conversation and someone says, critical theory helps identify and end oppression. So anyone who cares about putting a stop to oppression should support critical theory. What would you say? Critical theory is the idea that any human society can be divided into two groups, those who have power and those who don't. According to critical theory, those who have power always oppress those who don't. Therefore, any institution, relationship, and belief system established by those in power is best understood as a tool of oppression. The categories of oppressor and oppressed can further be divided into smaller categories based on things like race, gender, religion, immigration status, income, sexual orientation, and gender identity. Whether you are an oppressor or one of the oppressed is determined by your group identity. As a result, almost everything, including institutions like police, government, religion, and the family, are tools used by some to oppress those in other groups. Although all of us should care about ending unjust oppression, critical theory is not helpful in doing this, and here are four reasons why. First, power and oppression does not explain everything. Critical theory says that power is the best way to understand everything, but is that true? Some relationships have a clear hierarchy, like employers and employees, or teachers and students. Some institutions like governments and the police, also represent power. But power dynamics are not the best way to understand everything. Relationships, like parenting and marriage, are best understood in terms of love and respect, not power. While everything is capable of corruption, institutions like hospitals are not best understood as tools of oppression either. Things like mathematics, science, and even theology should be analyzed in terms of truth, 
not power. Assuming that every institution or field of study is a tool of oppression denies us the opportunity to learn what they have to teach us. Oppression exists, but reality is not that one-dimensional. There is malice, but there is also love. Exploitation is real, but so is charity. Viewing everything as a tool of oppression misrepresents the world as it is. Which leads to the second point. Power and privilege are relative concepts. In critical theory, things like race, sexual orientation, and gender determine whether we are part of the oppressed or one of the oppressors. While we are all unique, characteristics that may be an asset in one context could be a liability in another. For example, what makes you privileged in New York City may make you oppressed in Iran. Individuals who are privileged in a meeting of the Southern Baptist Convention may be oppressed across the street at a gathering of the Human Rights Campaign. Reality doesn't support the idea that a person will always be oppressed because of X or always be privileged because of Y. In the same way, the idea that all women, all Chinese people, or all Muslims have the same experience just isn't true. Which leads to the third point. Lived experience is not an infallible guide to truth. Critical theory argues that the lived experience of oppressed groups gives them unique insights into truth that should not be challenged. While everyone deserves to be heard, no one should be above critique because we are all capable of being wrong. Does an allergic reaction to vaccines mean I have an unchallengeable access to truth about vaccine safety? Does a religious experience give rise to an unchallengeable claim to truth about religion? Every parent understands that it is very possible to feel oppressed without actually being oppressed. Our experiences are important, but they are not all that's important. In a broken world, experience leads us away from truth as often as it leads us to it. Our experiences should be understood, but one reason life is best lived in community is that we are all capable of misunderstanding our experiences. Parents, friends, counselors, teachers, and pastors can share perspectives that may not be obvious to us. What critical theory calls oppression, others might call wisdom. Which leads to the fourth one. Critical theory is self-defeating because it ignores the power dynamics it creates. Critical theory claims that when one group gains dominance over another, it should be overthrown. In some places, however, critical theory has the power. Therefore, by its own rules, in places like public universities, critical theory should be overthrown by those it silences and oppresses, who, coincidentally, happen to be the same people critical theory overthrew to begin with. Effectively, critical theory calls for endless revolution and discontent in the name of preventing anyone from ever having power. Though the abuse of power is undeniably bad, Social order is undeniably good. Critical theory confuses influence for power. We don't hate influence or even power. We hate it whenever influence and power are used in the wrong ways. Instead of revolting against everything that has influence, we should see to it that cultural influences are used on behalf of what is good, true, and beautiful. Critical theory identifies a real problem, but gives us nothing to aspire to. 
We don't want to be mad at each other all the time. We want to understand how a world full of people who are different can live together cooperatively. That certainly requires us to understand how power dynamics work, but it requires us to understand many other things as well. So next time someone tells you that decent people should embrace critical theory because critical theory opposes oppression, remember these four things. Power and oppression does not explain everything. Power is real and oppression exists, but so does love, kindness, respect, and charity. And sometimes they're a better explanation for what we see. Power and privilege are relative concepts. Your privilege may not extend to the next room, much less the next country. Lived experience is not an infallible guide to truth. We all have unique experiences and we all deserve to be understood. But our experiences don't make us right and none of us is above critique. Critical theory is self-defeating because it ignores the power dynamics it creates. Once the oppressed take power from the oppressors, that makes them the oppressors. And then we start all over again. What sense does that make? For what would you say? I'm Joseph Backholm. Hey, I hope you loved the video. If you did, make sure you hit subscribe so you can see the next one. us to the whole um, topic of critical race theory, which I'm going to struggle to get to here. There we go. Now, critical race theory, in terms of understanding its relationship to critical theory, is when racial relations in society are seen through the analysis of critical theory. So I want us this morning to hear directly from some of the most popular voices today who advocate what they call anti-racism. So let's begin with Robin D'Angelo in her best-selling book, White Fragility. Listen to how she explains racism. What a racial group's collective prejudice, or when a racial group's collective prejudice, is backed by the power of legal authority and institutional control it is transformed into racism, a far-reaching system that functions independently from the intentions or self-images of individual actors. So racism equals prejudice plus power. Therefore, only white people can be racist, since only white people have the power to oppress other races in society. She writes, People of color may also hold prejudices and discriminate against white people, but they lack the social and institutional power that transforms their prejudice and discrimination into racism. Later on, she says, While everyone of every race holds prejudice and can discriminate against someone of another race, in the U.S. and other white settler nations, only white people are in the position to oppress people of color collectively and throughout the whole of society. While a white person may have been picked on, even mercilessly, by being in the numerical minority in a specific context, the individual was experiencing race prejudice and discrimination, not racism. Or D'Angelo goes on to state, whether you define racism as racial prejudices and in individual acts, 
or as a system of racial inequality that benefits whites at the expense of people of color, as anti-racists do, your parents could not have taught you not to be racist. And your parents could not have been free from racism themselves. A racism-free upbringing is not possible because racism is a social system embedded in the culture and its institutions. So we are born into the system and have no say in whether we will be affected by it. We are then born into a system of white supremacy, and white people are the recipients of white privilege. And this privilege is called whiteness, which all white people have been socialized into. So she says, whiteness rests upon a foundational premise, the definition of whites as the norm or standard for human and people of color as deviation from that norm. And when we refuse to accept this understanding of of reality, then we are guilty of what she calls white fragility. Or we can turn to Ibram Kendi in his best-selling book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. This is how he defines racism and anti-racism. Racism is a powerful collection of racist policies that lead to racial inequality and are substantiated by racist ideas. Anti-racism is a powerful collection of anti-racist policies that lead to racial equity and are substantiated by anti-racist ideas. Again, notice his focus on the use of power in our social systems. But he also says we will either be racists or anti-racists. He writes, there is no neutrality in the racism struggle. The opposite of racist isn't not racist, but anti-racist. What's the difference? One endorses either the idea of a racial hierarchy as a racist or racial equality as an anti-racist. One either believes problems are rooted in groups of people as a racist or locates the roots of problems in power and policies as an anti-racist. One either allows racial inequalities to persevere as a racist or confronts racial inequalities as an anti-racist. There is no in-between safe space of not racist. The claim of not racist neutrality is a mask for racism. So you are either with us as an anti-racist or you are against us as a racist. And you cannot be a colorblind non-racist since this concept props up and maintains our racist systems. And so to correct this racial power imbalance, anti-racism requires racial discrimination by favoring black people over white people in order to gain equity. Again, these are Kendi's words. If racial discrimination is defined as treating, considering, or making a distinction in favor or against an individual based on that person's race, then racial discrimination is not inherently racist. The defining question is whether the discrimination is creating equity or inequity. If discrimination is creating equity, then it is anti-racist. If discrimination is creating inequity, then it is racist. The only remedy to racist discrimination is anti-racist discrimination. The only remedy to past discrimination is future discrimination. So according to anti-racism, unequal treatment is necessary in order to bring an equitable outcome. So our goal is equity, which is the equal distribution of resources in 
society. Now, I know this is a lot for us to process, but I'm hoping that you hear some common worldview commitments in both D'Angelo and Kendi. While there are some differences between them, they share fundamental convictions about the nature of humanity, what is wrong with the world, and how to solve the problem. These, then, are all expressions of their worldview. So let's compare this anti-racist worldview of social justice with the biblical worldview of social justice. And Teach for the Heart Ministry has actually come out with a helpful chart here comparing critical race theory with the gospel. So I'm going to read through this. You may not be able to see it. I have cut it in half. Uh, but hopefully you can hear me as, as this comparison is made. In critical race theory, we see, uh, in a nutshell, it is a view that examines society through the lens of power, dividing people into oppressed and oppressor groups. Whereas in the gospel, the good news that Jesus, through his death, burial, and resurrection, offers hope and life to lost sinners. So you see this comparison. But what's the core problem according to critical race theory? The core problem is whiteness. There, there are systems that oppress people of color, where the core problem for the gospel is sin, man's rejection of God's good rule. The solution, according to critical race theory, is becoming woke, doing the work, and being an anti-racist. The solution, according to the gospel, is Jesus, to repent of sin and allow the Spirit to change us. The goal of critical race theory is utopia, everything being equitable. And we can accomplish this by our own efforts, as we've seen. But the goal, according to the gospel, is unity with God and with each other through Jesus. And in that sense, utopia comes when King Jesus reigns. Let's continue. Our identity, according to critical race theory, is either oppressed or oppressor based on skin color. But the, our identity, according to the gospel, is God's creation. We are in God's creation. We are loved by him. As Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ, right? We are created in his image. What about truth and morality? Critical race theory. The claim or assertions of oppressed people should be accepted without question. Whereas in the gospel, God determines what is right, and his word is the ultimate truth. In critical race theory, racism is racial prejudice plus institutional power. But in the gospel, racism is the sin of partiality revealed as racial prejudice. Who then can be racist? According to critical race theory, white people, because only they have power. But according to the gospel, anyone, because sin uh, can arise in, in all of our hearts. What are the primary emotions then we find in critical race theory? It's guilt and anger. Uh, what are the primary emotions in, according to the gospel? But sorrow and repentance leading to love, joy, and peace. And let's compare then finally the path to unity. A critical race theory, it's to overturn unjust systems and build collective power. But according to the gospel, God makes us one with him and unifies us to each other as we yield to his sanctifying work in our hearts. So hopefully that gives you a little bit of a comparison in understanding these two different worldviews. Biblical Christianity and social justice as an ideological worldview through critical race theory. Do you see then how social justice is an ideological worldview that redefines biblical words and categories? As we have seen, 
in the Bible, justice is the fair and impartial treatment of others according to God's law. But according to critical race theory, justice is the equitable outcome of policy according to anti-racist ideas. In the Bible, equity means equality of treatment. But according to critical race theory, equity means equality of outcome. In the Bible, God is omnipotent and he entrusts his power to the human social institutions of family, church, and state. And it's when this power is abused that oppression takes place. But according to critical race theory, power is inherently oppressive. So those in positions of power are oppressors in society, whether in the family, the church, or the state, while those not in power are oppressed. Finally, in the Bible, racism is the sin of partiality through racial prejudice, but according to critical race theory, racism is racial prejudice combined with structural power in society. But here's why I raise all of this. That if Christians are not aware that these words have been redefined, then this pursuit of social justice can sound very biblical. After all, the Bible talks about justice, equality, and oppression. God cares about injustice, and he calls his people to live equitably. Racism is condemned in Scripture through the sin of partiality. But if you are not careful... You can fill these biblical words and doctrinal truths with unbiblical meanings and worldly ideas. So you can misread God's words subtly and undermining the very gospel which is our hope by bringing in these meanings from this worldview into your reading of Scripture. Yet this false worldview has crept into the church through the teaching of social justice. Let me give two examples. Eric Mason is a pastor of Epiphany Fellowship Church in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and he has written a controversial book with the title Woke Church, an urgent call for Christians in America to confront racism and injustice. By the way, for those interested, a foreword to this book was written by well-known and respected Reformed pastor and theologian Lincoln Duncan. But now Mason's book, uh, as I read it, I want to be clear, is more reserved than the title suggests, because he seeks to maintain the centrality of the gospel while calling Christ's church to regain its prophetic voice, which is why I want to be clear up front that I consider Mason to be a brother in Christ, and I think he has been misrepresented often by his critics. At the same time, he has said and preached a number of things which are problematic. Last August, in a sermon series called Cancel Culture, Mason preached a message titled Defining and Doing Justice Biblically. And when he defined justice, he quoted Michelle Tooley's definition from Erdman's Dictionary of the Bible. So here's the, def the definition he used. In a philosophical sense, justice is understood as fairness, correct treatment, or equitable distribution of resources. But biblical justice is more than a mathematical distribution of goods. Now, what do you hear that has been added to our biblical definition of justice? It's the equitable distribution of resources. And including this idea of distributive justice corrupts our understanding of justice and changes the meaning of equality. Do you see then how a slight change in the definition of a word 
can have a large impact on our beliefs and practices. Or allow me to share one more example. A frequently recommended book for Christians is by Jamar Tisby, The Color of Compromise, The Truth About America's Complicity in Racism. And so here on the next slide, listen to what he writes. What do we mean when we talk about racism? Beverly Daniel Tatum provides a shorthand, or Tatum possibly, provides a shorthand definition. Racism is a system of oppression based on race. Notice Tatum's emphasis on systemic oppression. Racism can operate through impersonal systems and not simply through the malicious words and actions of individuals. Another definition explains racism as prejudice plus power. It is not only personal bigotry towards someone of a different race that constitutes racism. Rather, racism includes the imposition of bigoted ideas on groups of people. So there's the completion there of that quote for those who want to read it. But did you hear his definition of racism. You can see it there on the screen. It's one adopted by critical race theory. It's prejudice plus power. Now, to commend Tisby, he does include personal bigotry towards someone of a different race's racism. And in our last class, we recognize the reality of systemic racism. But his appropriating this understanding of racism as prejudice plus power reveals elements of a worldview, the worldview of critical race theory, that is then present in his study. And so while I found his historical survey of racism both informative and tragic, unbiblical beliefs undermine providing a more complete and accurate assessment of our nation's history and the church's progress in racial relations, as well as how we should confront remaining injustice and oppression. Here's Tisby's assessment. He writes, another theme this survey reveals is that racism changes over time. As society changes, so does racism. Racist attitudes produce different actions in 1619 than they did in 1919 or 2020. History demonstrates that racism never goes away, it just adapts. Brothers and sisters, what a depressing conclusion. And is Tisby really suggesting that the gospel cannot overcome racism in the church? I doubt it, but this way of thinking will ultimately undermine the work of Christ through the Holy Spirit among God's people. Which brings me to the last question, so what? So what? Allow me to summarize an answer to this question of what is at stake in the debate over racism and social justice. There are four reasons we must oppose social justice as an ideological worldview. Because first, it undermines the gospel. In this worldview, there is no repentance, and hence forgiveness, but there is only penance in working through anti-racism to improve things which means there's no grace and reconciliation ultimately, but only work and power redistribution. See then how it undermines the gospel. But not only does it undermine the gospel, it undermines sin. Because the sin of partiality is good as long as it benefits an oppressed group. So it undermines the gospel, it undermines sin. Third, it undermines scripture. 
because the Bible's not enough for racial reconciliation, but we need the truths from worldly philosophies and analytical tools through critical theory. So it undermines the gospel, it undermines sin, it undermines scripture, and finally it undermines the church. Because all authority is oppressive, which means that the church harbors racism rather than, recon- uh, rather than reconciles peoples. You see then why this is such a serious challenge to Christianity that has arisen today. Now in our next and final session together, we will turn from a negative critique to a positive response. What should the response of the church and Christians be to racism and social injustice? Well, stay tuned as we consider that the next time we're together. really pretty much out of time, but are there any quick thoughts or questions? My goal at this point is to have one more week uh, where we deal with, again, what I mentioned before, the positive uh, <clears throat> positive look at what how we should then live today. And then I'm thinking the next Sunday, we'll actually